Let's talk about doctors. Physicians and medical professionals play a crucial role when we're sick or when we want to prevent an illness. Sometimes, this is at the risk of our own health and wellness. I'm Jordan Anderson, DEAI ComSci host for American Scientist, and today, I'm introducing a special episode based on American Scientist's Spotlight Report, Physicians Need Caregiving Support Policies, written by our own Digital Features editor, Katie Burke. As the son of a physician and brother of a medical student, I hold this topic near and dear to my heart. So let's dive in. Becoming a physician often involves what's described as a grueling but rewarding process. Following undergrad, physicians must complete four years of medical education followed by three to seven years of residency and fellowship. During these periods, their time is limited and many young physicians in training wait until they're established in their careers to start building their families. Once physicians are ready to start, traditional healthcare policies don't always support physicians' personal lives. Women tend to be most affected by this lack of support. For many of them, family leave policies and other support for caregiving need to be improved. I'm here today with Katie Burke, who will discuss more about the article she wrote and the experts she spoke to who are working in the front lines of this issue. I first asked her how and why she started looking into this topic. I've been thinking about this for a while because we all lived through a pandemic and I've seen how stressful that was for healthcare workers and for anybody who is a parent and anybody who is doing elder care. I'm interested in this topic because I can see that it's it's salient right now and a lot of people are working on making change. One of the institutions that is working on that is the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. And they are holding a series this year, and the first one was in February, about supporting caregivers who are in STEM professions. And the first workshop was about um, mostly about physicians. And so that put on my radar how much of an issue this is for physicians in particular, um, especially, you know, as they, they're still, you know, processing what happened during the pandemic, and many of them are dealing with burnout and all of the stressors that came to the fore, especially for any caregivers who were dealing with having to caregive during the non-ideal situation of being in a pandemic. So that's how I got connected with two of the people I interviewed, Jessica Lee, who's at the Center for Work-Life Law at the University of California, San Francisco, and Christina Mangurian, um, who's also at UCSF um, at their School of Medicine. And they both spoke at that workshop, among many other wonderful people. And I also um, started looking around in the recent literature to see what was going on in the research literature about this topic. And that's how I found uh, Nita Latirapong's uh, article, which came out in January, that's specifically on family leave policies in academic medicine. And she's at the University of Chicago and is a faculty member there. Jessica Lee comes from more of a policy angle and law angle. And then Christina Mangorian um, has been working on policy for a long time, um, but has also a background in academic medicine. And Nita Latirapong also has a background in academic medicine. 
Now, I've talked to a lot of physicians, and a lot of them have said how different medicine is today than it was when they were going through medical school and residency and starting off as practicing physicians. Today, it's a lot more humane in terms of accommodating people and their basic needs. It's not as grueling or intense, but it still is grueling and intense. And yet, it's still interesting to read about how, especially in the space of parental leave, there hasn't been as much progress as there could be. And so I would love to hear more about like, well, where are we now? And how could things change in the future? How soon would that happen if I were a medical student today? If I'm coming into residency, maybe out of residency, is how much different could that environment look? Yeah, so policy is really hard to change. I think that the recognition that we need better family leave policies and caregiving support policies has been recognized for decades, uh, right? And yet, you know, it's been very slow to change. And, you know, if we're talking to folks who, who came into medical school back in the 1970s or 1980s, I'm sure things are different by a long shot, but they're still not where this, the evidence indicates we need to be. And medicine, you know, has supposed to be practice, be evidence-based. This is Nita Lai Tierpong. She's a physician and professor of medicine at the University of Chicago. But we found that, um, only three quarters had some paid leave, but only 15% offered 12 weeks of paid leave, a fully paid leave. So a lot of places might have some leave for birth mothers, but they weren't paying them at the full pay. So if you could imagine you give birth to a child, a baby, and then you take a pay cut for that period of time that you're on parental leave. So that's pretty disturbing. And Fathers also experience the same problem. Only 13% of medical schools offer 12 weeks of full pay for the non-birth parents. And then adoption and foster parenting. Foster parenting is uh, a strategy for many physicians who you know, delay childbirth as well as adoption is a, a strategy to be parents for, for, mm -hmm. for many physicians who have to delay childbirth because of finishing their training. And those policies were even worse. You know, 40% of places did not have any adoption paid leave policy and 75% had no foster paid leave policy. You know, in the United States, we have pretty, like pretty poor caregiving support policies compared to other countries um, that are developed. But in the United States, we have the um, Family and Medical Leave Act, and that requires at least 12 weeks of unpaid leave. But this is also a time in workers' lives when, you know, we're suddenly hit with expenses. There are usually healthcare expenses. Um, not all birth centers are covered under insurance. They're often not. So there's an intensity of expense, both related to the actual birth um, and then having a new human to support potentially, you know, any other medical bills that might come along. And then also caregiving is expensive, especially in the United States. So pay is really important to help not add stress to people's lives. So only 15% of medical schools offered their faculty 12 weeks of paid leave. That number was even lower for non-birth parents. So, you know, if we're talking about cisgender um couples, then that would be the dad isn't getting any parental leave, um, at least not paid, depending on, you know, how it's it's structured. And there was just so much variation across different institutions. It's just really not guaranteed at all. Also, what Latira Pong's team found is that the more prestigious institutions and the private institutions tended to have the better leave. 
And most people don't work at those institutions, right? Like most physicians are left out of that, you know, so it's only kind of the cream of the cream of the crop institutions that have these really flagship policies when really everybody deserves them. And we know that evidence points to having healthier workers and um, less stressed workers and uh, less burnout, less depression um, and more retention, all of which, you know, is good for the employer, is good for the employee. There's a lot to consider when it comes to policy change and what things would be like for a med student who's coming out of residency today. Here's Katie to talk more about this. Several states have passed um, more generous leave than the National Leave Act requires. And so we're starting to see more and more states hop on boards. In talking with Jessica Lee, who's, at, who's the lawyer at the Center for Work-Life Law, she talked about how no matter if there is a policy, which is kind of a bare minimum, the policy all isn't always effective. So to really have good policy that includes everybody and all of their different kinds of caregiving needs, it takes, you know, real intention and thought and looking at best practices and evidence-based studies. And a lot of um, places aren't doing that yet. So it's going to be a real push for somebody who's going through med school now to both be selective about where that they end up and making sure that they look at the family leave policies that are in place, and then also pushing their institutions, funding institutions, the institutions where they are currently going to medical school, um, and also accreditation institutions um, to make changes. One of the accreditation institutions, the ACGME, which accredits uh, residency programs, did make a change last year. So there is potential change. They recommend now six weeks of paid leave. But six weeks of paid leave is still lower than the 12 weeks of paid leave that are recommended um, by the American Academy of Pediatrics. And also there's variation around what leave is, is really needed. Um, if you're adopting, the research suggests a year. 12 weeks is also considered too low for even birth childbearing and, and, and child care after birth. 12 weeks is really low um, and it's low compared to other countries. So yeah, we have, we have a lot of um, change that still needs to be made. Yeah, it definitely sounds like there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And this is a huge issue. In my own work in public health, I've learned that there's a 100,000 physician shortage. And I was reading about in your spotlight report that one in five physicians have planned to leave or retire from medicine. And that's huge. That leads to more overworked doctors and that leads to a patient population that physicians can't represent equally because a lot of women are leaving and there's already less women practicing than men. I think about how do we create policy and how do we actually push for these kinds of initiatives in the workspace as people who are in medicine. As somebody who has previously applied to medical school, it's really interesting because you can try to go to certain institutions that might offer some of these opportunities and policies, whether it's leave and stuff like that. But a lot of times you end up having to go where you get in as well. In a career in medicine, you have to be willing to move across the country if you have to. And a lot of people don't realize they don't want to sacrifice their whole life to do that. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a huge issue um, across STEM, just the amount that you have to move. And, you know, you can't always work where you want to work um, with the at the places with the best flagship policies. Yeah. And I think that when it comes to looking at policy change, 
it, it really helps to talk to the people who have been successful. And I think that this workshop, um, this, 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 these sessions that are being held by the um, National Academy of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine, um, really are inviting a lot of people who are panelists who are working in, on these policies and have been able to make policy change. So that's one place people can look. Um, and I think that um, it, it was helpful talking to Christina Mangurian um, because she did actually change policy at her institution. Um, and um, she's, she talked a lot about um, having supportive administrators um, which you can't always control at your own med school, but finding the people who are going to be allies, who see this as a problem, and then putting some of the evidence that is out, out there. I mean, you know, these papers that um, that I've looked at um, all talk about just the tremendous amount of evidence that this is needed. And so putting that, you know, putting those papers out there, showing how the problem the, how how deep the problem goes and how much these policies can make a difference can really help convince um, even a, a skeptical administrator or a skeptical policymaker. The reason that all of um, the people that I interviewed and many of the other people whose papers I read and um, whose work I looked at, you know, the reason they're doing this is because they want these papers to be used for policy change. Um, they want people to take a look at this research and say, oh yeah, what is my institution doing? What can I do? What, what, is, what can I do to move you know, the accreditation institutions um, or the funding agencies policies on this? And we have seen that another point that, um, that Dr. Mangrian made was we want people who reflect the population that they serve, yes. And also caregivers also see the medical system from the perspective of the patient a lot more. And so having that experience is actually gonna make a lot of physicians, you know, if they've been through the, that caregiving role, they will have perspectives on how to improve their institution's medical care uh, and also how to help their patients navigate a system that isn't always intuitive to navigate. I think what's not brought up as much is how important that life event is actually to you being a good physician. This is Christina Manguerian. So the empathy that you have for uh, uh, a child or a new mother or your experience going through the health system, all of those things actually feed in to go, oh, this is this actually helps me grow as a mother and as a doctor at the same time. She used the um, example of right now, uh, she's caring for her dad. She said that she had to spend the night at the hospital recently. And um, it, she was able to give this story of just like, you know, she saw things like people were vacuuming in the hallways in the middle of the night, and that was disrupting his sleep and her sleep and things that you wouldn't necessarily see if you're a doctor who's not on shift then and doesn't know that that's happening, then, you know, there's all sorts of little things that can affect a patient's care and their experience and their and their health that a, a doctor may not be aware of if they haven't seen it from other perspectives. So we want people who have 
had those experiences to be physicians, you know, for so many reasons, but that being one of them. I think the opportunity is us as physicians, when we go through some of those informal caregiving issues is to really see upfront and personal where the real gaps and opportunities are in fixing our system. I think we owe it to um, the our faculty to build policies that aren't only for women, that can be for everybody, but that address this need to take care for people they love. Um, otherwise, I, I really do think um, they, they'll leave. Policy is only the first step in navigating some of these challenges in healthcare and family leave. But Katie, do we actually see some of these challenges being addressed? At least in this, this particular um, policy realm, that there is potential for change and that we are starting to see changes. I think the changes will be slower than many of us would like, but um, as is always the case, I mean, we've known that many of these issues um, existed for a long time, um, but I do think that we're gonna see some progress. If you enter into a negotiation about your needs as a family caregiver with this mindset that you're asking for favors, you're gonna be treated that way um, and you might not get what you want and you might not even get what you're legally entitled to. So, you know, start thinking of it as, um, you know, you are exercising your rights and hopefully think through the creative solutions um, that would enable, you know, that work to keep moving, make the cost benefit uh, case. Um, because I think a lot of times folks don't fully understand what it would mean to lose somebody um, or the fact that they're on the edge of losing somebody. So I think presenting it as well in the sense of like, this is how much I paid to get here. This is how much you paid to get me here. Do you really want to throw this all out now? Um, has been helpful for a lot of folks. You shouldn't have to fight, but <laughs> if, if you do, there is backup available. So Katie, we're coming close to time. Do you have any last points on this topic? If there are listeners out there who are dealing with the stressors around balancing family care and work, then there are resources out there. I would point them to the Center for Work-Life Law as one of them. If you're in academic medicine or academia in general, the Pregnant Scholar website also has a lot of resources and that's part of, that's one of the programs of the Center for Work-Life Law. That concludes our Spotlight Podcast episode. Thank you, Katie, for joining me today in discussing this topic. This podcast has been brought to you by American Scientist and Sigma Xi, the Scientific Research Honor Society. For links to the studies mentioned in this episode, as well as the transcript, please visit americanscientist.org and look for the blog post that accompanies this podcast. Additional speakers mentioned in this episode include Jessica Lee, Nita Leitierpong, and Christina Maguarian. Today's music choices come from Epidemic Sound and the Free Music Archive. Please be sure to check out American Scientist's Spotlight Report, Physicians Need Caregiving Support Policies, the American Scientist episode found on our website this podcast is based on. Also be sure to check out the article Nita Leitierpong worked on, Evaluation of Parental and Medical Schools Ranked by U.S. News and World Report 2020. Finally, check out the University of California, San Francisco Center of Work-Life Law. If you like what you heard today, follow American Scientist. I'm your host, Jordan. Thanks for listening.